The Joes go a hang gliding, Craven goes a hunting, and I go over the hill. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I can. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. I have two comics for you this time, and guess what? You'll still hear me strap an onion on my belt and ramble on. Yes, it's everything you come to know and tolerate from this podcast. Anyway, the first of our two comics this time around is G.I. Joe Special Missions number 7, which came out on June 23, 1987 and cost $1. The cover by Mike Zeck shows Lady J and Chuckles on motor-powered hang gliders flying toward the Cobra building in the middle of the night. It's not as dramatic as the last couple of covers that we've seen in this series, or the covers we've seen from Zek in the main series. But it still features something that happens inside the book, so it's still a good cover. And let's be honest, in the 1980s, Mike Zek covers were like pizza. Even when they were, pretty, they were bad, they were still pretty good. Our story is called Switcheroo, and our creative team is as follows. Larry Hama, writer, Herb Trimpey, art, Bob Sharon Coloring, Phil Felix Lettering, Bob Harris Editor, Jim Shooter Editor-in-Chief. We open in New York City, and two trucks from the penultimate pest control company as well as Cerebrus Security pull up to the Cobra Consulate building. They're not there to do anything for Cobra. Instead, the people in the the pest control trucks are terrorists who have hijacked the truck to attack the Cobra building. They clear security, but instead of parking and going in to take care of pests, they crash the truck through the lobby entrance and also commandeer the garage entrance. They make quick work of the guards and then start talking about how they are going to get vengeance for what Cobra has done to their home country of Sierra Gordo by blowing up the building, and then they break out their stash of C4. Baroness is in charge of the building, and despite verbal sparring with Zarana, she's able to mobilize her security forces. But before she can take care of the problem, Televiper, who is pretty much the sound wave of the Cobra Gang, tells her that the terrorists have taken over the security system so they can see their every move. The terrorists tell Cobra that they won't blow up the building if they cooperate with their demands to withdraw their support for the current regime in Sierra Gordeaux. Baroness is stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Zorana continues to taunt her. Dr. Mindbender confirms that the terrorists are telling the truth about having explosives in the building. And he then does 50 crunches just to emphasize it. And a call to Serpentor is useless because the mighty Cobra Emperor is all, uh, I left you in charge, you figure it out. Bye, Felicia. Across the street, a small team of four Joes, Chuckles, Dialtone, Psychout, and Lady J, observes what's going on. 
Chuckles is watching through a scope while Dialtone listens in and comments on Zorana and Baroness's fighting. Psychout remarks that despite all of the bickering going on, the Cobras are acting according to their usual predictable behavior. In the lobby of the building, Baroness has a team of Vipers head to the boiler room. They storm the room, they're taken down, and the leader of the terrorists tells Baroness not to take them too lightly, and blows up the truck that was sitting in the lobby, just to emphasize his point. Baroness orders the building to be evacuated with only Zorana, Dr. Mindbender, and her immediate security team to stay there. Once the guards on the roof leave, our four Joes who are on the roof across the street get into their motorized gliders and make their way to the roof, while in the sewers below, Tunnel Rat and Breaker cut the building's power. In the boiler room, the terrorists start to argue amongst themselves. One of them, Evita, says, don't cry for me, Argent... Oh, wait, no, sorry. She says they can still blow the place up while her associate tells her to hold on a moment because he doesn't necessarily, well, want to die, and he thought that Cobra would have given in by now. She calls him a traitor to the cause and a coward, and they begin struggling. In the lobby, the Baroness and Zorana argue with one another. On the roof, Dialtone patches himself into the Cobra satellite dish. Lady J puts on a Baroness disguise. In the sewers, Tunnel Rat and Breaker actually turn the lights back on, and then they had, and then the Joes on the roof transmit with Lady J as the Baroness saying that Cobra has no intention of dealing with a bunch of amateur dilettante revolutionaries with no heart and no guts. I dare you to blow up the building. I know you won't because I know how truly weak you are. Weak and spoiled like the pampered children of the effet middle class that you are. Televiper shows Baroness that their signal has been hacked. Zorana and Baroness then get into actual fisticuffs. In the boiler room, Evita sets off the bomb and then sees it's not filled with C4, but instead it's filled with tear gas. Baroness and Zorana get out of the building, and the Joes walk out behind them wearing their gas masks. Lady J and Chuckles talk about how this was the plan all along. Chuckles helped the terrorists. He gave them all the gear, including the fake C4 that was filled with tear gas, so they could provide a really nice distraction and cover that the Joes needed in order to bug the Cobra communication system. I have to say that even though in total I only bought four issues of G.I. Joe Special Missions in 1987, the three I've read so far here have been some of the best comics I've read for this podcast, and I'm looking forward to buying other trades. I have these one-and-done stories, and I love these one-and-done stories, and I love how they feature just a few characters, making it kind of like Solo Avengers or Teen Titans Spotlight. And I especially love this Joe's is the A-team type of story they have going here, with Chuckles clearly giving us all the George Papard, I love it when a plan comes together bit at the end of the book. In fact, the Joes are barely in this. Most of this issue is spent with the Sierra Gordo terrorists and with Cobra. And those guys are such 80s terrorist bad guys. I mean, so stereotypical. They're from a Latin American country that's a stand-in for either Nicaragua or El Salvador. They're dressed wearing black, and they're wearing red headbands. And, and this isn't a knock against Hama's writing, because I think he's doing it on purpose. Cobra supports what they call the proletariat government, but it's clearly the type of government that in the 80s would have had Soviet backing. And the Baroness even throws some class warfare language around, referring to the privilege of their middle-class nature, etc., etc., but Hama's not getting political here, per se. He's just having a little fun with the politics of the time, especially since Chuckles also takes total advantage of all of that. You know, he uses these terrorists and their cause to get into the building. It's like Hama's saying, 
look at these idiots in the way that the movie Network has a little bit of fun with the Sabinese Liberation Army, you know, the one that kidnapped Patty Hearst. And then you have this whole thing with the Baroness and Zorana griping one another to the point where they actually get into a cat fight in the chaos that ensues at the end of the issue. They hate one another to begin with, and Zorana just basically keeps taunting her about how she's ineffective and how she won't be in charge for very long. Baroness is all, uh, whatever, all you do is ride your brother's coattails. And toward the end, Baroness finally yells, that's it, that's all I can take, and she tackles her. Plus, the entire time they're arguing, Dialtone's listening in because he's the Joe's communications guy. And he's doing this play-by-play in the same way that like anybody would eavesdrop for the sake of gossip. At one point, Zarana gets really snippy and Dialtone's all, Ooh, she better watch out. Baroness has shot people for saying less. You, you can almost hear the snap. Um, plus, there's the mission itself. It's an elaborate, crazy scheme that has this simple purpose. Bug the Cobra Consulate building. Really, all of that planning to bug one building. And Chuckles is like, hey, it worked, didn't it? I mean, I don't think I realized that G.I. Joe could be played for laughs this way. Meaning that Hama's not doing parody. He's not making fun of those characters. He's not making fun of a situation. He's actually giving us a slightly comedic storyline. Yeah, there's a little bit of action. Yeah, there's definitely a mission in here. But one thing I've noticed about the way Hama writes, especially this particular series, is that he really has the mind of a really good 80s action television producer. This is right out of a Stephen J. Cannell script. It's like totally that mix of comedy and action and fun, and it it really um, it really is worth the dollar I paid for it thirty years ago, and it's worth reading now. And Herb Trimpey adds to it. I mean, his art only enhances it. Um, again, the GI Joe art can be hit or miss. Here, Trimpey, I've praised I've praised him for his special missions work before, and I'll do it again. I think it's because he's inking himself, and I I know I've said that before. He inks himself through the issues I have read, and that really improves the artwork. He makes the character interaction dynamic, and whatever action there is, it's pretty gripping. And the touching up, the enhancement, whatever IDW did for the trade paperback that I have, also makes the artwork look crisp, and it makes it pop off the page. This is the last story in the first collected special missions volume, which means I'll have to order the second one soon. And uh, it's worth the investment, though. In fact, I think one and two are available, at least as of this recording, on in-stock trains for about 14 bucks. So it's very, very worth the money. So I'm going to take a break right now. And when I get back, I'll talk Web of Spider-Man number 31. Stick around. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny.
Also coming out on June 23, 1987, was Web of Spider-Man number 31. The cover by Mike Zeck, so this episode is chock full of Mike Zeck, shows Spider-Man in his black costume, because he was wearing the black costume full-time. And this is the non-symbiote black costume, by the way. He's in his black costume, and he's trapped underneath a net. He's holding out his hands and obviously pleading while someone points a shotgun at him. The cover text says that this is part one, The Coffin, although it doesn't say anything else. This is, as it was later named, Craven's Last Hunt, and we will find out right away that Craven is behind all of this. It's a great cover, too, and it bugs me that the trade paperback that I have, which is the first of Craven's Last Hunt, it's the first edition of Craven's Last Hunt from 1990, doesn't have the full covers, just parts of the covers as introduction to each chapter. Oh, well, at least I got my trades signed by the writer. And hopefully I'll be able to get the rest of the creative team members to sign it as well. And speaking of them, they are J.M. DiMatteis, writer, Mike Zeck, penciler, Bob McLeod, inker, Rick Parker, letterer, Mike Zeck and Ian Tetralt, colors, Jim Salakrup was, I believe, the Spider-Man editor at the time. And Jim Shooter would still have been Marvel's editor-in-chief. We open with Craven, naked in his home, fighting a panther, and fighting a gorilla. Although I think they're like animatronic or something. Because he knocks like the gorilla's head off and it's just like nothing there. And the narration boxes give us some of his thoughts. I am Craven, the beast. My mind is rage and glory. My heart is fire and pride. My body is grace and power. I am Kravinov, the man. An old man now, though few would believe it. Just a child when I, my parents came to this country shortly after the overthrow of the Tsar, some seventy-odd years ago. There was no more room in Russia for aristocrats, for culture, for honor, for human dignity. But all those things were bred in my bones long before the Trotskys and Lenins dragged my homeland into the pit. Dignity? Honor? Where are such qualities today? All the world, it seems, has followed Russia's sad example. Were my parents alive today, they would look upon this frightened, wounded animal called civilization without recognition and with great fear and great disgust. I am Craven, the hunter. I have found dignity not in the cities, but in the jungles. I have found honor not in the civilized, but in the primal. I have found morality, I have found meaning in the hunt. But I cannot escape time forever. Herbs and roots and potions cannot rejuvenate a dying spirit or heal a heart crushed by the weight of a corrupted age. I must die soon. I will die soon. I must die soon. But not yet. Now the last <clears throat> four panels on the page uh, on that last page are uh, him kneeling before an open casket, standing up and reaching into it, and pulling out a black Spider-Man costume. And then we switch to a bar in New York, where a group of criminals are holding a funeral for a thug named Joe Face. Spider-Man is watching and is shaken up by all of this, and he actually drops in to actually pay his respects. He drops some money in a collection so they can all buy Joe a 
proper burial plot. And he heads back home where he thinks about how he was going to die as well at some point, but, but not yet. Cutting back to Craven, he is crawling around a room full of spiders and consuming them, thinking, Tonight! Peter wakes up from a nightmare and gets on his webs in order to clear his head. He's mid-swing when he's hit with something. And we get three different narration boxes. First in yellow is Peter's inner monologue, wondering why he's so shaken up by the death of Joe Face, who's just this everyday nobody. Second in red is more spidey thoughts commenting on the current actions. A dart? A dart, for instance. The third is Craven's monologue in orange and in a very different style of lettering, which is what Craven's monologue will be through the whole uh, storyline. Which is and and this is reciting a. At this moment, he's reciting a variation on the famous William Blake poem "Tiger, Tiger," going "Spider, spider, burning bright in the forests of the night, what mortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry?" Craven approaches Spider-Man with a determined look on his face, saying that honor will be restored. This day scuffle, Spidey gets away, but not for long, because whatever was in the dart that Craven hit him with is drugging him. Craven throws a net over Spider-Man, pulls out a rifle, and repeats, Honor will be restored. Spidey's thoughts race, ending with, He's out of his... But they're cut off by the blast from the rifle. We end in the cemetery, where throughout the issue we have seen a gravedigger working on a grave. That grave is Spider-Man's. Craven helps finish the grave, standing there in a suit and then smiling as lightning crashes. They cover the coffin in dirt and leave with the poem repeating itself. Spider, spider burning bright in the forests of the night. What mortal hand or eye could frame my fearful symmetry? I bought this off a spinner rack at my LCS, uh, which is where Bob kept the comics that were just slightly older but still were flipping through. Kind of like how a number of comic stores keep the previous few issues behind the newest issues on the shelves. I don't know why I'd missed it then or when it first came out. But at some point in probably early July 1987, I heard about this really cool six-part story that was going on in all the Spider-Man titles. And I saw that part one was on the shelves. And I think that I remember buying at least the back half of the story the day they all came out, but then wound up getting the rest of them off of various spinner racks and from the stationery store that summer. I don't have my original issues anymore, actually. Uh, those were either thrown out at some point in my childhood or I did hold on to them and offload them as part of a huge eBay lot a billion years ago. At any rate, I have the trade and I took it with me to the Baltimore Comic Con last year and told JMD Mateus that this is one of my first Spider-Man stories, at least the first one that I could like fully remember. And I th and that I was 10 years old when it came out. And I think his reply was something on the order of, "Did you need therapy because of this?" Okay, so on to the issue. The storyline is held in high regard, or at least uh, that's my impression anyway. Like I said, I have experience with Spider-Man. I've read a few things here and there. And while I'm definitely a fan of the character, I don't think I'm part of the Spider-Fandom, if we're differentiating between them. Anyway, I think I remember that this was a big deal because it was one of the first that they did in the Spider-Books that deliberately crossed over between all three books. And it was done by the same creative team, so it was set up to be a two-month summer event. I read somewhere, it might have been Wikipedia or something, that that was done on purpose because they didn't want 
it to happen in one title and then Spidey's still alive and swinging around in the others. What it does is really, uh, really get its point across well, especially this first part. This this kicks it off in a way that's definitely worth it. Demetrius doesn't waste any time getting to the villain of the piece, Craven, who's going mad. He'd appeared here and there in various titles in the 80s, including an appearance in Secret Wars 2 and in a few issues of Kazar. But the last time he faced off against Spider-Man, at least as far as I can tell, was the Spectacular Spider-Man number 65, and that was in 1982. So I would have not been familiar with him back at all back then. It's not like he was the Joker or the Penguin or somebody else who would definitely have been recognizable, despite not appearing for a long time. So DeMatteis is in the position where he can actually introduce the villain to the reader, because he knows that a number of people picking up the book might not have seen him before outside of a reprint issue like Marvel Tales or uh, his entry in Ohatmu. And what winds up happening is that DeMatteis and Zek lean on one another to tell a story that is moody, haunting, and really, really dark, and it works perfectly. I like the creepiness of Craven and the madness that he's obviously displaying when he's naked and fighting those animals and then crawling around in a room full of spiders and eating them? Please tell me that's a metaphor because it's just, I mean, my skin's crawling. Oh. Anyway. Huh. I also like how in those first few pages we get all of the exposition we need from Craven. Who he is, where he comes from, in a sense that A, he holds a major grudge against Spider-Man, which is the motivation. Maybe he's been humiliated time and again, and and I think B, he's facing his mortality in some way. Uh, this is 87, the Russian Revolution is what, 17, 1917, 1918, so yes, yeah, 70 years ago. So something's been keeping him alive. Or keeping him young, but now his mind is catching up and he's realizing that he doesn't have much time left. So maybe this is a big part of it as well. Peter seems to be thinking about the same thing, but he can't exactly put his finger on why he's so shaken up by the death of Joe Face. He mentions Ned Leeds as well, and I honestly don't know who Ned Leeds is. But I did do some research, and his last appearance in a Spider-Man book prior to Web of number 31 was in the previous issue, in a flashback in Web of number 30, and he had just died within the last year or so worth of comics, which, as part of a huge Hobgoblin storyline, and that death was definitely weighing on Peter. He'd also recently married, and Mary Janison isn't in this issue, but she appears later on in the storyline, and I want to say that in continuity, this does take place after the wedding. So Peter's had a lot happen recently, and it's definitely the sort of thing that would rattle a person. I'm not even going to call into question either how Craven finds Spider-Man in New York. I'm just going to say that he's a hunter, and a hunter is good at tracking his prey. And, well, Spidey is the prey. Besides, the scene where he drugs, fights, and then shoots Spider-Man is chilling because of the way DiMatteis stays in Peter's head so that we can see how Peter goes from confused and a little dazed because of the drugs he was hit to flat-out panicking. And the death scene is a great seven-panel page. 
You have four vertical panels across the top half of the page with two parts of Peter's thoughts. The yellow narration says, Yesterday, Ned leads. Tomorrow, Joe face. Tomorrow, Aunt May? Mary Jane? <clears throat> the red narration says, He's out of his... And the panels are Spider-Man struggling with the net, the deformed-looking ghost of Joe Face, Spider-Man struggling with the net again, and Craven with the shotgun. And the last three panels are stacked horizontally, and are the blam, followed by a black panel, and then the image of a man digging a grave, which has been propping up repeatedly since the issue started. Demoteus and Zek are firing on all cylinders here. And this is an outstanding standing out opening to this story this made me want to read more it made me want to get back go back and find the issues that i accidentally skipped over and i absolutely love it and i love the art and i can't wait to look at the next part which will actually be in the next episode but right now i'm taking another break and i'll be right back <laughs> the lonely hearts romance comics podcast in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty! In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him! <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is Romance Comics Theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book romance. Daniel, would you introduce your father, please, and tell us what he does? My dad's named Mitch, and he's... he's a submarine commander. Oh, Danny. Submarine commander? He works for WBLM Radio. Oh. <laughs> well, like, uh... Danny said, I work for WBLM Radio. Are you a dish jockey? No, I'm not a dish jockey. You know the commercials that are on the radio? Oh, do you make all those commercials? No. Other people make the commercials. I sell them time on our station for the commercials to be on. So you decide which commercials to use and when. That's right. Well, no, it's not right. It used to be right. Seems now that I even have to check with the station manager if I want to wipe my nose. <laughs> The minute he took away my authority, I should have quit. <laughs> Mr. Robbins? What? Value this time in your life, kids. Because this is the time in your life when you still have your choices. And it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud. 
One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. Start eating dinner at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You have lunch around 10, breakfast the night before. Spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? The 80s, you'll have a major stroke. You end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? Today is my 40th birthday, and I would have said something about how both the comics came out today on my 10th birthday in 1987, but I'm 100% sure that I didn't buy either of them on the day they came out. Furthermore, I honestly can't tell you anything about my 10th birthday other than it was a Tuesday, and I may or may not have been out of school by then. And I had to look what day of the week I had to look up what day of the week it was, so I don't even have a really good memory of it. Anyway, I've been wondering what to talk about uh, for this segment because it is my birthday. I feel like I should say something because it's forty. It's another decade. It's like I've hit a deadline or something. I don't know. Truth be told, the only decade birthday that I really remember clearly and feeling like it was a big deal was when I turned thirty. But that's because Amanda was eight and a half months pregnant. We'd flown to Chicago because I was in a groomsman in my friend's wedding, my friend Harris's wedding on the 24th. So Amanda and I went to lunch at P.F. Chang's to celebrate my birthday and then went to the rehearsal dinner at the bride's parents' house, which is in this really tony area of the Chicago suburbs. In fact, we drove past a building that I recognized from an establishing shot in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Then we went to the wedding the next day. We drove into Chicago to meet my friend Shell for deep dish pizza. It was a trip. So the whole that whole trip was unrelated to my birthday. It's not like we went away from my birthday. And my, the birth of my only kid, which is also related unrelated to my birthday, that's what made 30 or turning 30 memorable. So it wasn't actually turning 30. Furthermore, I don't know if I could top Mike Bailey's I'm Turning 40 episode of Views from the Long Box from 2016. 
And if you haven't listened to it, I recommend that you do. And I recommend that you go and listen to episodes 87 through 100 of that show. So you can see what I've been sort of ripping off here. Then again, I've been sort of ripping off Mike for years with Pop Culture Affidavit, so give credit where the credit is due. Long story short, I'm not going to try to top him, because it's not possible. Still, if there are any negative thoughts I have about turning 40, they're probably all related to things physical and not mental or psychological. I'm definitely creakier than I was, and I seem to be holding on to the same 20 or 30 pounds that I gained about 10 years ago, that I've been kind of like gaining and losing for the last 10 years, and that hasn't been particularly great for my health, but I feel that at least some of that is correctable in some way. I guess I'm feeling a little conflicted right now because I don't particularly find myself bothered by the fact that I'm turning 40. I think that I was more annoyed a couple of years ago when I was hitting my 20th high school reunion and you heard me get all contemplative on episode 50 of Pop Culture Affidavit. And if you didn't hear me talk about that on episode 50 of Pop Culture Affidavit, go listen to me talk about it on episode 50 of Pop Culture Affidavit. I'm actually really proud of that episode. I really liked what happened, how it came out. But right now, 40, I'm ambivalent. There's a line in Gross Point Blank that I have been thinking of when it comes to turning 40, and it's spoken by Minnie Driver's character, Debbie. She's talking about their 10-year reunion that's coming up, and she says, Everybody's coming back to take stock of their lives. You know what I say? Leave your livestock alone. It's like when you hit a milestone age like this, because it ends at a zero, you're obligated to suddenly become reflective and think about all the things you haven't done or even regret how cool you used to be and that's why you, oh, I don't know, end up buying a Porsche or sleeping with a 23-year-old or something. I don't have many regrets in life, to be honest. I had a shot at seeing the Ramones once, and I never did. I probably should have dropped Calculus 2 my freshman year of college and it would have saved my grade point average. I actually spent cash money to see the Jerky Boys movie in the theater. And then there's the fact that I said I liked the post-Zero Hour New Titans comics at one point. Those are small. It's not like I feel like I let the big thing that would have defined me get away or there's a woman out there who really is the one or I did something awful in the past or or something I mean I haven't left a trail of bodies in my wake or anything like that and if anything my life to this point has been ordinary normal which I know is a relative term but really as fun as I am at, at rambling on in this section of this podcast there aren't crazy and wild stories from my youth or any wonderful adventures to tell about most of the stories i could tell you about when i was younger have to do with stupid or immature behavior i also don't have any advice to offer anyone younger than me except that i don't know don't forget to use your turn signal What I've been thinking about as I close in on 40 is not how much is behind me, but how much I have ahead of me. 
A few weeks ago, the woman I had been co-teaching classes with on and off for the past nine years retired. We went to our district's retirement celebration breakfast, and then we took her out to dinner that evening to give her a send-off. About a week later, we were both back in my classroom taking things down, cleaning out what was left because I'm also leaving my building for another job at another high school. We went to lunch with another teacher friend of ours and started talking about working in the future. During our conversation, I actually did the math and I realized that if she's retiring at 65, I've got at least 25 more years of work, no matter what it is. 25 years. I've already been teaching for 13. I've been working full time for nearly 18. When I was 22 and just out of college living in a ground level apartment on Columbia Pike in Arlington, I thought that 40 was this threshold of, well, the beginning of the end. As if you couldn't hope to get anything accomplished after 40 because you would be locked into whatever you were doing. Conversely, you were supposed to have accomplished everything by 40. And if you didn't check every box by then, you somehow failed. And, and I don't know where that comes from. And I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think that I'm not the only one who felt that way. And maybe it comes from like the suburban upbringing of like where everybody's comparing each other, themselves to each other. And then there was sort of quietly stated path that you had to follow and growing up around adults who would look at somebody who didn't follow that path, who did something out of the ordinary and referred to it as a shame that it didn't happen the way things were supposed to. Oh, that's such a shame. And I think that mentality seeps into you when you come of age and you do start to feel pressure. And at 22, I was, 40 was so far away. I was so young and so entry-level at the time. Plus, you know, everything's marketed to youth anyway. 40 was, well, it wasn't death. I'm not going to be that dramatic about it, but it, it was a relevance. And yet, as I turn 40, there are so many things that I have not done that I can still get the chance to do. Especially now that I have more experience under my belt. I don't have to sit there career-wise and lock myself into whatever I'm doing. Especially since I have 24 years, 25 years left. I hate to say that I think I should compile a bucket list because I'm not dying. But I wonder if that is something I should consider. Or at least because I don't like the concept of the bucket list. But like the idea of like, you know, what, what would I want to do? Really, I guess the attitude is to take a look at this as more of an opportunity. And who knows? I mean, this may have nothing to do with my turning 40 and more to do with my finishing my master's degree this summer or the fact that I finally landed a job I've been trying to land for the last three years. But really, there I feel the sense of renewal lately, like I can actually celebrate. I'd still like to lose that weight, though. Plus... While I don't have the physical ability or endurance of my youth, and I certainly can't throw back and stay up until 3 o'clock in the morning like I did when I was in college, I feel like age has given me some more perspective and an outlook that really has benefited me. I find that I'm more open-minded when it comes to what I enjoy, whether that be music, movies, televisions, books, comics, 
and I'm less obsessed with what other people think about me than when I was when I was younger. And I realize that as you get older, you just don't give a crap. But I'm glad that I'm starting to realize these things while my son is still pretty young, so that I don't don't end up accidentally passing along all of the insecurities I had as a teenager onto him. I think he'll be fine. But yeah, here I am, 40 years old. I'm going to order a pizza. I'm going to drink one of the craft beers we have in the fridge. Maybe that IPA from Brothers Brewing in Harrisonburg. Amanda baked a German chocolate cake for dessert. And I get to open presents. And then tomorrow night we're going to go out to dinner. Maybe I'll throw in a favorite movie at some point today. Just to just for the heck of it. But really, everybody here, thank you as always for listening. Uh, my next episode is going to be in about a week or two. It'll feature The Punisher number 3 and then The Amazing Spider-Man number 293 which is part two of the Craven's Last Hunt storyline. And as always, uh, don't forget to leave feedback on the blog, on the Facebook page, or you can send me an email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Take care. Felt great, right?